0: Leviticus chapter 16 this morning, we have been in one of the more difficult sections of scripture, difficult simply because it's so often ignored, it's moved past, it, it seems to some irrelevant, it doesn't really apply to today, and I, I hope that if you've been going through this with us, you see that the exact opposite is true. The application of God's word is relevant to every culture, to every time, to every person. It always meets us where we are. I think we'll see a little bit more of that this morning, but I'd like to read chapter 16 through. So just follow this through with me. Leviticus 16, verse one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil Before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place. "'because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, "'and because of all their transgressions "'in regard to all their sins, "'and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, "'which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. "'When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, "'no one shall be in the tent of meeting "'until he comes out, "'that he may make atonement for himself "'and for his household "'and for all the assembly of Israel.'" And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel to consecrate it. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat... Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat is the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water and then afterward he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, On the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the holy linen garments, the, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once a year Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. What in the world does that have to do with our current status? With what's happening in the world today, with where we are, Yom Kippur, as the Jews remember, as the Jews call it. I intentionally read the entire chapter to you. Sometimes I think we just need to read through We do the verse-by-verse study, and we pull things apart, and we unpack things to understand better, and we'll do that. But sometimes it's good just to walk straight through it and then ask, what is this about? You know what? As we were reading this morning, we got halfway through chapter 16, and in my spirit, the thought came up, this is the holy word of God. And whether we understand its immediate relevance to us or not, whether we look at it as an ancient Thing that Israel did that some of the Jewish people still try to continue to do, though they really can't do. Though we might think it doesn't have relevance to me as a Christian in 2020, or a non believer in 2020, especially would look at this and say it's archaic, it's ancient, it doesn't apply. This is the holy word of God. And I want to remind you that it always applies. It always applies. When I was a kid, I, was, uh, I had come out of a surgery, I had several surgeries, some of you know that, growing up, and, and after one of them, we had a gentleman from our church, a very learned man who I had great respect for, and he came to visit at my house, and he brought me a gift. It ended up being one of my favorite little books. It was just a book. Now, giving a, a child a book is not always the most exciting thing for the child, but over time, I began to really love this book. It was called Aesop's Fables. Some of you are familiar with that. One of these fables, it's called The Fox and the Lion. It goes like this. A very young fox who had never before seen a lion happened to meet one in the forest. A single look was enough to send the fox off at top speed for the nearest hiding place. The second time the fox saw the lion, he stopped behind a tree to look at him a moment before slinking away. But the third time, The fox went boldly up to the lion and without turning a hair said, hello there, old top. The concept of this particular fable of Aesop, what he implied in the 6th century BC was actually put into words by Chaucer in 1386. Talk about relevance. Chaucer said, familiarity breeds contempt. You know the phrase, we still use it today. The Oxford Dictionary defines the phrase saying it's extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something that leads to a loss of respect for them or it. That we get casual with the commonplace, bored with the known, contemptuous with the familiar. We can think that we know more about the person or the situation or the issue than we really do. And so we start to think we know better or we start to think less of the person. Jesus explained this another way. Having been disdained by his hometown, even his family, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus understood familiarity breeds contempt. I want to ask you this morning how familiar you are with God how familiar you are with the Lord. How casually do you come into his house? How do you approach the Lord? Oh, we have, we have confidence, truly. Bible tells us to draw near to his throne of grace. Confidence, absolutely. Confidence, but not contempt. It's familiarity that breeds, if not contempt, it, it, sometimes among us, even as followers of Jesus, presumption. Ah, we know this place. We know what happens. We know what's going on. And so we can take a casual approach to God. Think about this from the divine perspective. That's what I would call the risk of revelation. The risk of God revealing himself to man is that familiarity that causes people to react in a a common way to God rather than with holy fear. Rather than with deep, abiding awe and respect, and yes, love, we can get so comfortable. God, having explained himself to common man, took quite a risk. Not that there's anything about him that we shouldn't know, but because of how poorly we often handle the knowing. Like with the fox and the lion, it doesn't take long for some to become offhanded toward the Lord, the man upstairs the big guy, which are things that God should never be called. Yeah, he's a loving father. Yes, a dear and deep and personal friend. Jesus even took the moniker of brother. But to refer to God as anything less than who he is, well, that just comes out of our familiarity. He wants us to draw near. You're looking at me like, okay, Aesop's fables, and what are we talking about this morning? Yom Kippur? Think about Yom Kippur when God said to Aaron, you will not draw near to me unless you do it exactly this way or you will die. Not because God was issuing a threat, but because God understood something Aaron did not, that God is God. And Aaron was common man. Draw near, absolutely, but on his terms. According to God's mercy, God's grace, God's holiness. Remember the theme verse really of the whole book of Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, Leviticus eleven forty four. Be holy for I am holy. God's way of saying be like me so you can be with me so that you can come into my presence. And one of the great values of Leviticus is the time that God takes to teach us what holiness really means. That's what I love about this book. It's not just the offhanded, be holy. Oh, okay, Uh, holy, right. Who knows what holiness means? Well, God knows, and God explains. And so we come, and I suggest trembling, to this most holy day of the Jewish calendar year in Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. It's the 10th of Tishri. Typically falls September to October in our time frame. The calendar's a little bit off, the Jewish calendar from the the Western calendar, but this year it was September 27th into September 28th, Yom Kippur. Next year, 2021, it'll be September 15th to September 16th. Go ahead and put that on your calendars. And the Jews refer to Yom Kippur as a day of affliction. A day of affliction. Look at chapter 16, verse 27. Well, no, not 27. Is that the one I want? No, it's not. (laughs) Well, I'll find it. Oh, yeah, okay. 29. 29 shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month. On the 10th day of the month, you shall humble your souls. Some translations say afflict. You shall afflict your souls. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether native or alien or sojourns among you, for it's this day that atonement shall be made, kippur, shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. A day of humility and, and seriousness, day of affliction. Yom Kippur, well, as Leviticus 16 begins, and I wanna tell you, I fully intended to study Leviticus 16 this morning. We're not going to. I was into the study, I was thinking it through, processing it, and I was looking back to the run up to Leviticus 16, and you know what? As it begins this law of this holy day, we suddenly get transported back to chapter 10. Throws us back. We've been bowling along chapters 11 through 15, dealing with this section of purification, and suddenly as we get to chapter 16, the last chapter on the section of purification, we get launched back in time, as it were, back to what took place in chapter 10. You may recall when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, dared, probably drunk, to offer strange fire before the Lord, and they were immediately fired. They were permanently removed from office. They were terminated. Chapter 10, verse one, look back there. Now Dadab and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Now, we studied that chapter and when we looked at it, we wondered what the strange fire might have been and why the Lord reacted so severely. I mean, it seems like there are times where where people get away with murder almost, and God does nothing, and then something like this, they just put a little fire on their fire pans, and they end up burned alive. Why this response? And we talked about several reasons why, uh, what may have actually taken place, but here's one more possibility I don't think we covered. Look again at verse one of chapter 16, where it tells us, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. You know what that sounds like? They were headed for the Holy of Holies. That the reason this was so serious, and now the basis of Yom Kippur, the basis of even the high priest only going in once a year and going in with perfect offerings set up ahead of time to cover and protect him was that Nadab and Abihu took their firepans and just were headed to go inside the veil. Gate crashers to the holy of holies. Uninvited interlopers into the very presence of God. Familiarity breeds contempt. Contemptuously, presumptuously heading in to make a name for themselves. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Chapter 16, verse two, continues, that the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. I'm gonna be there. And you can't crash God's house unclean or uninvited. Yes, Nadab and Abihu had their ritual cleansing as they had to, to be priests on the day of their ordination, but their hearts were unclean. Their minds were not right. And, and so thinking about that, the uncleanness of the heart, This is what launched me back to rethink what we've been studying the last couple or three weeks. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Where the Lord deals with this. This idea of clean versus unclean. So before we do the Day of Atonement and we'll look at it, we'll study it through on Wednesday night. I invite you to come back because it is fascinating in what it portrays for us. But we're gonna look at the intervening chapters this morning. 11 through 15, gonna cover everyone verse by verse. No, we're not. We're gonna look at them as kind of an overview to see what we've seen and to process, make sure we didn't miss something that I think is vastly important. These chapters, 11 through 15, are here because of the high priestly charge, again, back in chapter 10, where the Lord spoke to Aaron, verse eight. It's the only time, remember that, God speaks directly to Aaron. Without Moses present, or not through Moses, just just to Aaron, he says do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. That's where we've been. That's what's going on. That's why 11 through 15 are here. Please understand this, to distinguish the clean from the unclean, for explanation of what holiness is. Be holy, for I am holy. My friends, these are not just, as we've talked about, they're not just physical laws. Now now granted, each one of these laws, these regulations, in chapters 11 through 15, were immediately relevant for health and hygiene. Put these into practice, put these into place, Jewish people, and I'll protect you down through the ages, and they did, and he did. So yeah, there's, there's physical ramifications here, but God continues to make it absolutely clear that the undercurrent is spiritual. This is a spiritual issue. Clean versus unclean. This is a heart issue. This is about holiness. And holiness is not a religious feeling. And holiness is not getting all gussied up on a Sunday morning. Holiness is to have a heart that's clean. Like David cried out in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In fact, all of chapters 11 through 15, all of it goes to the heart of the pure and spotless bride. All of this is great study, a manual for the walk of a follower of Jesus. And I hope you see that this morning if you haven't seen it yet. I have a question, and this is the question that's been stirring me. This is one that knocked me off of chapter 16 and sent me back to the previous chapters this week. And it's a question we haven't really yet answered, and that is, Why these examples? Why the examples of clean versus unclean that we see in 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? Chapter 11, clean animals for food. Chapter 12, uncleanness in childbirth and how a woman gets clean. Chapters 13 and 14, unclean skin disease and contaminated clothing and polluted plaster in the house. And finally, chapter 15 that we looked at Wednesday night, male and female discharges. Are you kidding me? And you go through these, you go, okay, I was talking to Israel, it's really important. Okay, move on, quick, let's get to chapter 16. Wait a minute, hold on, why these? I mean, God could have chosen anything to distinguish unclean to clean, holy and profane. Why these four areas? Why these examples of uncleanness when there are so many things in this world that are unclean that he could have called out? Why these in particular? And that's what I wanna answer this morning. Go back to chapter 11, verse 44. 1144, the Lord says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord God who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. He repeats, and then he says, this is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth. Why? To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So note this, here's the first example he gives. Clean versus unclean meat, why? It is a picture of, number one, the sin we take in. The sin we take in. Why does he deal with animals at all? Because we're consuming, taking in, eating these things, and it is a picture of the sin we take in. This ultimately wasn't about beef and pork. If it had been about a beef versus a pork thing or certain animals and other animals, then the Lord wouldn't have changed his mind with Peter. If truly pigs were unclean, then BLTs never would have been on the menu. It never would have been okay because something something doesn't just automatically become clean. God's making a point. Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what does he say to Peter? What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Did God change his mind? Did suddenly he think, well, bacon's okay. When, by the way, did God consider all food clean? That's an interesting question. I mean, it was Acts chapter 10 when Peter was up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. Remember that? And he's praying and he has this vision and it's the vision of a sheep being let down from heaven. Three times a sheep, probably looks like a Jewish prayer shawl, but filled with unclean animals. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. When had God cleansed it? I think Mark gives us the answer. Mark chapter seven, verse 18, Jesus says, are you so lacking in understanding also, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. And I suggest that that was the moment. That Jesus is the one, God in the flesh, who said all foods are clean right in that moment. But get this, when the shift occurred was when Jesus finally explained it's the heart that matters. And the reason why beef versus pork isn't the issue is because beef and pork doesn't go to the heart, it goes to the stomach. I know the cholesterol goes to the heart, but look, stay with me. <laughs> the food goes to the stomach, it doesn't go to the heart. But you know what? Some things do enter the heart. There are things that we ingest that go directly into the heart and this physical ingestion of unclean animals gives a graphic picture, garbage in, garbage out. What I take into my heart comes out of my heart, either clean or unclean. Put it to you this way, we're either gonna feed the sin appetite with unclean things or we're gonna nourish the spirit with clean things. There's the sin we take in. You wanna chew on this some more. Compare the deeds of the flesh, thank you. Compare the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. We're not gonna do it this morning, I'm not gonna have time, but Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 25 is your homework this week. Compare the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit and you tell yourself, you ask yourself, which of these am I taking in? What am I taking in? What is the sin I take in? Because as I take in unclean things, and it could be what we watch and what we read, it could be what we hear, the people we hang out with, the places we go, all of these things that have impact that we take in spiritually and affect the heart. Deeds of the flesh, unclean. Hey, the heart is already having its issues. There is already the sin nature, doesn't need any help. But as we take in unclean things, we feed that. Or the fruit of the spirit. What are you taking in? Paul put it this way, and it's beautiful. And by the way, a verse I think every believer ought to memorize, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And if I was writing it, I would add, not your news app. (laughs) Does that bring you peace? Your favorite commentator on whatever channel? Dwell on these things. Take these things in, why? Because rather than sin being taken in, We take in grace, we take in goodness, we feed the spirit and the spirit gets stronger and the spirit produces the fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The sin we take in. That's why he's talking about unclean food. That one's easy. The next thing of which God makes an example is uncleanness in childbirth, Leviticus chapter 12. Why that one? Well, there's the sin we take in, and there's also the sin we begin. You could say the sin we birth, because humanity has a natural proclivity to sin. That's what all of us would do in the flesh. That's what we do naturally. We don't have to be taught. You know that old song? In fact, James Taylor just did a a cover of it, You Have to Be Carefully Taught. It's from an old musical Talking about bigotry and prejudice, and that and that and the song's wrong, my friends. The song is wrong. It says you know the, the indication is we come into the world innocent and pure, but we have to be taught to be prejudiced. We have to taught to ha- be taught to have bad attitudes. We have to be taught literally to sin. Wrong. We sin naturally, and we birth sin. Yaakov. James chapter one, verse 14 said, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what sin does. Is there a way to stop birthing sin in our lives? I mean, if we have this sin nature, and we know we do, how do we stop, how do we say no to it, how do we keep it from being born day in and day out? And there's a simple answer to that, offer up obedience, offer up obedience. You see, in Leviticus 12, the mother in childbirth is considered unclean. By the way, unclean, not sinful. There are several moments in this whole section 11 through 15 where God refers to something as unclean. doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful. The mother has not sinned because she's giving birth, but she's unclean, why? Because God is painting a picture here, a graphic picture to help us understand that we do birth sin. Birth itself is not sin, the mother has not sinned, but she's unclean. What does she do to take care of the uncleanness? She has to obey. She has to offer up obedience. She had a prescription to follow in order to become clean again. Look at Mary and Joseph. Upon learning that she was going to bear Emmanuel, the only clean baby ever born, (laughs) she was gonna bear Emmanuel in her womb and despite certain scandal and an uncertain life, what does Mary do? Luke chapter one, verse 38, she says to the angel, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. She obeyed. For Emmanuel to come, that is God with us, you gotta get clean. Gotta have a clean house. And Mary did so simple, unquestioning a thing. She just obeyed the Lord. By the way, keeping the Levitical law. Leviticus chapter 12. We looked at this when we studied it. Luke chapter two, verse 22 says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So they presented Jesus, and in Luke 2, 24, and, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary obeyed, simple obedience, and by the way, Jesus was perfect, pure, and clean, unlike any baby ever born before or since not with the proclivity to sin, a pure child and yet Mary still obeyed. She gave birth to God, she still obeyed. To stop us from birthing sin in our lives, obedience is the, issue, is the answer. Obedience is the cure to our uncleanness, to our sin. It's really hard to birth sin when you're obeying God. It's really hard to produce evil when you're in the midst of worship. So there's the sin we take in, as in unclean foods, there's the sin we begin, as in the birth, number three. Leviticus 13 and 14, leprosy, the sin under the skin. (laughs) It erupts, what a picture. It erupts from under the skin, like leprosy, from deep inside, again from the heart, Sin is generated, born, if you will, and then erupts from the skin like certain disease and like the leprous disease described in chapters 13 and 14, it's infectious. I said it moves from the skin to the shirt to the shack or put another way, from the heart to the hoodie to the house, (laughs) It moves out, our sin does. We think we've got it handled, we think it's, it's cool, we, we got it, we can hold it in, and yet it comes out. Next thing we know, we're wearing it on our sleeves until ultimately it affects, it touches everything that we touch, making everyone unclean, everything all around us. Like I said when we studied this, no one sins in a vacuum. It is a lie of the enemy to say, well, I'm the only one that's gonna be affected by this. Not true. Not true. Like leprosy, like the skin disease, like the disease of the garments, like the disease that gets into the walls of the house, it spreads and it infects. What do we do? How do we deal with that? We call for the purificatory priest. We, we studied this last week, and I talked about that. I got home, and my daughter, Ana Marie, goes, the what priest? What's that word you use?" Perk per. per- Percocet, what, what was that? Perspicacious, I don't, what is it? I said, purificatory, and then I said, the priest who purifies, and she goes, oh, why didn't you just say that? Because purificatory is more fun. The priest who purifies, we call on the purifying priest to offer sacrifice, that's what the leper does, that's what we do, it's how we deal with the sin under the skin. We call for our purifying priest, Jesus who is the priest who purifies, and he also is the offering. That's the amazing thing about Jesus, as we've talked about, he is both priest and offering. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, we spent some time on that last one last week, but there's one more unclean issue here that I wanna deal with, that we need to think through. There's the the sin we take in. There's the sin we begin. There's the sin under the skin. But then we come to chapter 15. Chapter 15, just look at it, verse two. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. I'll never forget the first time I read that. What? What are we dealing with here? I remember way back then, because I was a youth pastor. I'll never teach that passage. (laughs) Oh, never say that to the Lord. I have now taught through it two different times. In fact, the King James translation, Leviticus 15.2, and if you were here Wednesday night, you heard this, it actually reads this way. When any man has a running issue out of his flesh, Because of his issue, he is unclean. And the further you get into Leviticus chapter 15, the more you see that it's all about unclean discharges. Issues from the flesh. Male, the first half of the chapter, and female, the second half of the chapter. It's intimate, it's personal, and it's a bit embarrassing. I told Cheryl when I got home Wednesday night, the way I deal with it, I just put my head down and go. (laughs) Just teeth, don't stop, just go. Because if you stop, you're gonna go, whoo. Unclean discharges, what in the world is that a picture of? Note this, mark this down. Number four, the sin we keep in. What do you mean? Secret sin, secret sin. These male and female bodily discharges, these running issues of the flesh, remind us, as I said over and over Wednesday night, if it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. But here's the thing. Who's gonna know? If you read the chapter and you recognize what's being talked about and where these issues are coming from, it's from our most private parts. Who's gonna know? Who's gonna be aware that there's something going on with these private issues that are not outwardly obvious? No one's gonna know, like sexually transmitted diseases, which is what the chapter is mostly dealing with. And menstruation, again, really? Who's gonna know what's going on? It's so personal, so private, so hidden. Sexually transmitted diseases. I'm gonna repeat a statistic I gave on Wednesday night. Did you know that a third of all Americans are walking around with an incurable sexually transmitted disease? We're all worried about COVID, and we've got 113 million Americans with incurable STDs going on right now. One out of three. That blew my mind when I saw the statistic. And you wouldn't know. You'd have no idea. at Safeway, walking down the street, sitting in church, you'd have no idea. It's private, it's personal. It's not something you're talking about, and it certainly isn't obvious on the outside of the flesh, like the leprosy, you see it, but you don't see this. Any Israelite could be walking around camp undetected of this uncleanness. God calls it out, my friends, How many of us are harboring, sheltering, concealing secret sin? Nobody knows. It's the sin we keep in. The unclean things that that we think we can hide, but the thing is, we know God knows. Don't we? We know he knows, and with brutal honesty. Psalm 38, verse three, says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. That's the thing about secret sin. It gets heavier and heavier and heavier until it just makes you sick. And God knows, and you know, and you know that God knows, but we lie to ourselves and we think, as long as no one else knows, I can hide this, I can keep it under wraps, it doesn't have to be a thing, but it's killing us inside. And Psalm 90 verse eight says, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He knows. Hebrews four thirteen says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, I've shared before, this word open in the Greek is so graphic, it, it describes the flaying of an animal. An animal that's been hunted, that is now split open and, and gutted and cleaned out. That's what, All things are laid open. And then he says, and all things are laid bare, which literally means naked, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know that he knows. And you know what? That's not to slam anyone with the old school, God is watching you. Mamas used to do that to their kids all the time. They're going out the door of the house. You know, God is watching you. God's watching. Hey, the truth is, again, we know he sees. I like the answer to that. God is watching you because he can't keep his eyes off you because he's a father who adores you. Not because he's waiting to pounce, but he does know, and you know he knows. But again, it's a game we play, out of sight, out of mind. Well, you might get it out of sight, out of mind, but it's still in the heart. And we know, just just as Adam and Eve knew, First sin, think about this. Genesis 3, verse 8 they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Maybe he didn't see, maybe he doesn't know, put it under wraps, and then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself and we've been doing it ever since. We've been trying to hide. And the hiding, listen, the hiding, it's not the sin. The hiding, the secrecy destroys relationship. It destroys relationships and marriages when we hide things from each other. Destroys relationships and families when we hide things from one another. Destroys friendships we have thoughts and feelings of sins and sins and misbehavior and we hide it from each other. Secret sin. What's the answer to secret sin? Separate yourself from the secrecy. Look at chapter 15, verse 31. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. Separate yourself from the secrecy. That is, get it out in the open. Bring it into the light. Oh, oh, but you don't know what my sin is. It doesn't matter, he does. And I'll tell you what, there is nothing in this fellowship, in any church situation, or on this planet that hasn't been acted upon by somebody. You think, oh, my sin is the worst sin in the world. No, it's probably the same as most other people. And I guarantee you, even if it's not the same as everybody sitting in the sanctuary this morning, there are plenty of other people who have done exactly what you are afraid of confessing. And what I'm saying to you is, it just can you even imagine what it would be like to step into a world where it truly is okay to confess to one another? To be open and honest Knowing that when we do, the response isn't going to be, get out. But instead, oh, let's pray for grace. God wants to forgive you. That's what grace does. Grace covers, love covers a multitude of sins. We confess, it's brought into the light. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and in him there is no darkness at all. Do you understand what that means? That means there's no pretense with God. There are no facades. There's no gamesmanship. There's no secrecy. It is all what it is. Proverbs 3.32 says, for the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. When I bring it to light, that, restores the sweetness of of relationship. That brings about intimacy, when I can be pure and honest and clean and open. Tell you what, that's the thing, probably more than anything else that has built a foundation of a solid marriage with my wife is openness and honesty. We used to play a game with each other when we were first married, I think I've told you. Who Who could seek forgiveness first? That was the winner. If we're having an argument, the first one to say I'm sorry won. It was usually me. (laughs) We'll ask her, that's great. I'm seeing people texting right now. Is that true, is that true? And you know she's watching the live stream so she's just going. (laughs) Intimacy is complete openness. It is walking in the light as he is in the light. You want to get close to God, man, get real with him. Be straight up, honest, transparent. Here's the deal. He already knows. He wants you to open that up. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, secret sin, we lie. We don't practice the truth. First John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Tell you what, the best thing for this fellowship is the ability for us to confess one to another. That will increase intimacy and trust and relationship among us and Jesus cleanses us from that sin. See, that's the beautiful thing, walk in the light, but what if, what if I do that, and he realizes what I've done, he cleanses you from all sin. Washes it away. It is one of the most liberating verses in all the Bible, that he cleanses it, we just open up, and he makes it clean. Why would the Lord make an example of something so, as, so uncomfortable as Leviticus 15? to teach us to stop hiding. To show us, this, here's a picture of your secret sin. What do you do? Bring it into the light. Here's the thing, from public issues to, or public eating to private issues, from chapter 11 to chapter 15, the whole thing explains that all people will, one way or another, contract uncleanness. That's, the state of humanity, intentionally or unintentionally. And to be unclean is to be unfit to enter into the presence of God. And that's what he wants. Not for you not to enter, but for you to enter his presence. That's why this is so important, why why holiness matters. Again, verse 31 of chapter 15, Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, so they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling, what? My tabernacle that is among them. Do you realize the entire purification section 11 through 15 is leading up to the vital need for Yom Kippur? That's why we come to chapter 16, the Day of Atonement? I mean, think about that. Ever wonder why Yom Kippur was required? We've got these other four things and we look at them, okay, they're pictures of sin in different ways and different aspects, how it works, how we respond, what we do with it. Okay, that's all good. Chapter 16, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They had every single day the morning and the evening sacrifice, every day of the year. In addition, they had the burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings happening all the time throughout the year. Not to mention that every single one of these unclean issues, chapters 11 through 15, had their subset of special offerings. Man, haven't we had enough? Isn't enough done here? Why yet another another offering on this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement, isn't it good enough? Listen, it's because God requires a clean house. And it's the thing that a lot of people misunderstand about Yom Kippur. Think about the challenge of the big move. God's big move. Think about the challenge of this. First, he came from highest heaven and then made his way down to the top of Mount Sinai. And from there, he's gonna make his way into the camp of Israel. It's an amazing challenge movement of the Lord, and much of the holiness factor of the book of Leviticus is about that move. It's about preparing people, the people of Israel, for that move, because it's the risk of revelation and familiarity that breeds contempt. God is preparing a people for his presence. And get this, the day of atonement well, all these other offerings, all these other sacrifices throughout the year, they were about the person or the people, but the day of atonement wasn't primarily atonement for the people of Israel. It was atonement for the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the, the word in the Hebrew, mishkan, the dwelling place of God. The atonement that happened on that day, it wasn't for Joe Shmo or Jacob Shmeikub. It was for the tabernacle itself. It was for the holy place. It was for the ark and the mercy seat and the altar. It was for these things. Yom Kippur is all about keeping and maintaining a clean house for a holy God. As Gordon Wyndham wrote in his commentary, the main purpose of the Day of Atonement was to cleanse the sanctuary from the pollutions introduced into it by the unclean worshiper. The aim of these rituals is to make possible God's continued presence among his people. So look at chapter 16, verse 32, which tells us the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement, for what? For the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. First and foremost, that's what the day's about and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Why? Because since the day before, they've already been unclean. They constantly needed atonement. But this day, Yom Kippur, this is about a clean house for a holy God. Clean people, clean priesthood, clean dwelling place for his holy presence. Which brings me to this final question. How clean is our house? Now, I, I'm, I'm sure that none of us have ever brought anything unclean into the church. The sin we take in, the sin we begin, the sin under the skin, and the secret sin we keep in. And you know what? According to this book, all of that stuff pollutes God's holy dwelling. So the answer for ancient Israel, was Yom Kippur. These unclean worshipers, all this uncleanness around the tabernacle year round. God said once a year, you gotta stop and clean house. Yom Kippur. It's about the dwelling place. You know what breaks my heart? So many Jewish people today, some dear friends of mine, they still believe Yom Kippur cleanses them without sacrifice without offering, without tabernacle, without temple. They still keep Yom Kippur. On Chabad.org, it says, for nearly 26 hours, we afflict our souls. We abstain from food and drink, do not wash or apply lotions or creams, do not wear leather footwear, and abstain from marital relations. Instead, we spend the day in synagogue praying for forgiveness. We take the day and afflict our souls, says the Jewish person. And I'm not meaning any disrespect here, but it is a complete waste of time. It doesn't work. It's become a day of groveling, self-affliction and seriousness. I have Jewish friends who say of all the Jewish holidays of the year, they hated Yom Kippur the most because that's the one where they had to fast, no marital relations, and all day long, they just went to temple and prayed and read Leviticus 16. Seriously, a Jewish friend who said, I just hated that day. It misses the whole thing, and here it is. Yom Kippur pointed to the most profound moment in all of history, when Messiah cried out, Luke 23, 34, Father forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. He who was born into this world, yet clean, who ate with sinners, and yet Jesus remained clean, who touched lepers, still clean, He came into contact with a woman who had a 12-year bleeding discharge and he walked away clean. Jesus even touched death. In fact, on that same day, he walks away from the woman, goes to the little girl's house, synagogue leader's daughter's house. And raises her from the dead and all the while Jesus is never unclean goes into funerals breaks them up touching the coffin young man raises back to life what are you doing lord you're going to be unclean not jesus cuz he's so pure he's so clean he's so righteous touching all these things and never unclean until calvary until that day until the cross when the clean war our unclean, so that he might wash it out by his blood. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be called the righteousness or become the righteousness of God in him, and it was that day when the veil was ripped from top to bottom in the house of the Lord. The Lord told Aaron, don't you go behind the veil without these specific cleansings and offerings in this specific order, and it is detailed in Leviticus 16, don't you come in here without doing it, and only once a year, but on that day, God ripped the veil, said no more. Why? Because what God has called clean, no longer call unclean. What a marvelous day. The long symbolized cleansing of the house of the Lord on that day was personified, and this is where my Jewish friends are so close, they're so close, but missing Messiah. The Yom Kippur, you know what? It actually is a personally atoning picture. It is personal. Wait, Rick, you said it was about the tabernacle. It is about the tabernacle. You said it was about cleaning God's house. It is about cleaning God's house. It's about when the person becomes the holy dwelling of God. John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We become the mishkan, the dwelling place of God. And he wants a clean house. So before he takes up residence in you, he makes you clean. And what God has called clean, no longer call." Unclean, don't do it, don't do it. Don't look in the mirror and say, unclean. Don't sit there and grovel in your sin, unclean. Repent, confess, get it out into the clear, make it obvious, bring in a brother, a sister, pray together, change direction, stop the lifestyle, just bring it before the Lord. He wants you clean that he might dwell in your house. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter nine, verse six The Hebrew pastor understood Yom Kippur and describes it this way. When these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, listen that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Is the outer tabernacle standing? No, it fell in 70 AD. The temple went down. He said, it's a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the more greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, listen, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what this is about, all these Laws of purification leading right into Yom Kippur. They reveal our need, they reveal our uncleanness, they direct us to Jesus who is the completion of our purification. So that rather than coming before God flippantly or with contempt, we have confidence, Hebrews ten nineteen to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and now I think we're ready to look at Leviticus 16, so let's start. Chapter 16, <laughs> verse one, we'll cover on Wednesday night. You ever just feel dirty? I remember a long time ago going with a bunch of youth pastors, yes, it was youth pastors, and we, and we met in Las Vegas for a convention of youth pastors. <laughs> I'm like, Why? It was the only time I've been in Vegas in my life. I know many of you have, have probably been there more than that, but I, I, I was there just that one time. I, no, no, sorry, second time. I was there when I was a kid. That's right, so I've been there twice. I remember walking down the strip and just feeling dirty. But you know what? i felt a whole lot more dirty since then just in my own life. Life gets on you, your stuff erupts. Try to hide it away, you can't hide it away and you just wish that you could be clean. That's what Jesus does. He cleanses us from all sin. Sin's not okay, it's still wrong, it's still unclean, it's still unrighteous, it's still dirty. Jesus says, let me take that, let me wear that, that my blood will cleanse you of it completely. And in that cleansing there is freedom, there is grace, And in that cleansing we do then have confidence to come before the throne of grace. Confidence, see you can come before the throne of grace even if you have sinned, do you understand that? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you can still come before the throne of grace If you have sinned, in your sin, crying out for forgiveness, and he will, at that throne of grace, forgive you. The difference is, when I confess, when I reveal, when I have been made clean, then when I come before the throne of grace, I come with confidence. I don't skulk in the back. I come walking in, I'm like, I'm good to go. Why? Because of Jesus, who has cleansed me of all unrighteousness. This morning, he will cleanse you Of all sin, if you will have him. Will you have him? Will you have Jesus? If you'll invite him in, he will clean house. Jesus, we invite you this morning. And we ask you to take all this that we've talked about, all this stuff, because it brings things up, even in my own mind, as we look at these different ways that you expressed and described and explained the uncleanness in us, Wow, Lord, it brings it up. And sometimes it's just the discomfort of that that makes us wanna shove it back down and not deal with it and pretend it's not there. Lord, as this sin rises in us and we recognize our faults and our flaws and our failures, we come to you. We say, Jesus, forgive us, for we don't know what we're doing. Thank you for being so faithful to this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross and at that moment, nailing every one of our sins to the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going into the grave and putting an end to sin and killing it literally in your flesh while you remained alive in the spirit. Lord Jesus, we praise you in your resurrection and the picture that we have before us of one bright and clean rising from the dead as we will be one day. But this morning, Lord Jesus, what you have cleansed, may no one call unclean. Make us clean today. In Jesus' name, amen.